Good morning to all of you. Let us continue in worship this morning as we look at God's Word. As found in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. And we will focus our attention in verses 10 through 15. Acts 17, 10 through 15. Now let us give our attention to God's inspired, inerrant word. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. If you had to come up with a list of words that you deem to be central to the Christian faith, likely your list at the end would include big words such as Bible, God, Trinity, Gospel, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, sin, cross, resurrection, atonement, justification, sanctification, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, and we could go on and on and on. And what do those words have in common? They all have tremendous doctrinal weight, massive theological significance. Each one of those words deserves prolonged seasons of study and meditation and for very good reason. But there is a word that, though somewhat insignificant by itself, when placed in its proper context, becomes one of the most significant and powerful words in the Christian vocabulary. A word without which you cannot make much sense of Christianity at all. It is like when you think about getting a new front door for your house. You think of the color, you think of the dimensions and the design, etc. It has to be pretty, right? You want a pretty door. But being pretty is just a part of the equation. It also has to be functional. And the functionality of the beautiful door falls on the hinges. For the hinge is what brings unity between the pretty door and its proper function. Likewise, the word I'm speaking of this morning is a type of hinge, for it explains the union between theology and practice, knowledge and function, truth and life. I'm thinking, of course, of the word, therefore. Hence the title of this sermon. Our Christianity is a therefore Christianity. In your Bible reading, never Never let the word therefore pass you by. In the Greek, the word is un. 
used as a conjunction indicated, indicating that what follows necessarily flows out of what came prior. Let me show you two of the most powerful uses of the word therefore in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 28, which you all know and we all know as the Great Commission, in verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Let me put it this way. Missions and discipleship would not exist without the therefore. Jesus has all authority, where? In heaven and on earth, therefore, missions, therefore, discipleship. In here, the therefore is the hinge between Christ's cosmic authority and worldwide discipleship. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and speaking of God, Paul said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God deserves all the glory for all that he has done in Christ Jesus. Therefore, live accordingly. Here, the therefore is the hinge between God's glory in Christ and our daily sanctification. Now, many other examples could be provided, but these will suffice as introductory to the therefore before us this morning in our passage. We see it in verses 11 and 12, where we read, now, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Many of them, therefore, believed. This morning, this therefore serves as a hinge between scripture and true living faith. Scripture and true living faith. Scripture, therefore, faith. Scripture, therefore, faith. So here's the basic breakdown of our passage. In Berea, the Word of God accomplished its purposes both through salvation, verses 11 and 12, but also through judgment, verse 13. In both cases, the point is this, brothers and sisters, the Word always prevails. The word always prevails. Now, let us see how. Having established a strong church in the city of Thessalonica after preaching Jesus as the Christ and having left the city of Thessalonica in a hurry because of the uproar created by the jealous Jews, which we saw in verses 5 through 9 last week, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, were sent off to another city south of Thessalonica called Berea, not a glamorous city like Thessalonica, a small dot on the map. But what an important ministry God gave Paul in that city. And here's the first thing that we see. If you're following along in the notes, here's the first thing that we see. The word inspired 
steadfastness of Paul. The word-inspired steadfastness of Paul. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived in Berea, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul is an example, brothers and sisters, of what it means to have patient endurance. Patient endurance. Unwavering resolution. Steadfastness. We see this in the fact, listen, Paul never victimized himself or allowed discouragement to simmer within his mind. He kept moving forward in spite of the pain and suffering involved in being an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't we need this role model today more than ever? You know why? Why we need it so much? In a world infested with snowflakiness, where minds are quickly melted under the smallest amount of heat, where the tendency is to be quickly offended by everything around us, and when we feel we have the right to quit and complain at the slightest sign of aggression, Paul stands as a true example of what it means to be steadfast. Consider the facts. Paul literally had just escaped one Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica and their attempts to hurt him just only to arrive at a different town and immediately go where? Another Jewish synagogue. You would think Paul by this time had had enough with the Jews, enough mistreatment, enough slander, enough resistance, enough trouble, but he went right in. He went right in. Now, before we are tempted to think of Paul as reckless, let us consider what happened prior to this. Notice that Paul did not insist on staying in Thessalonica and simply take whatever punishment might come from the Jews there. He didn't do that. Paul wasn't a senseless martyr. Instead, he took the opportunity to escape from their hands. In other words, steadfastness is not the same as reckless love for punishment. Paul wasn't an irresponsible missionary who sought to volunteer himself into unnecessary suffering. But steadfastness, notice this, did turn Paul into an unbeatable soldier. Unbeatable soldier. The pains and the sorrows of the past were not enough to deter him from moving forward. Isn't this precisely what James says? In James chapter 1, verse 3, it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If there was something Paul did not lack was testing. He was tested everywhere he went. Consequently, he was and he remained for the totality of his life, steadfast until the very end. Don't, my brothers and sisters, don't ever underestimate the great power of the testing of your faith. Do not ever question, underestimate the great power of the testing of your faith. This is often how we become established in the faith. This is often how we become steadfast through the testing of our faith. But what Paul had was a word-inspired steadfastness. 
What I mean by that is simply that Paul remained steadfast for the sake of making the word of God known to those to whom he was sent. Paul knew, he always knew what the people around him needed the most. This was, in fact, Paul's prayer, re- prayer request to the Thessalonians. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. This was a word-inspired steadfastness. He knew that the heart of the mission was to spread the word of the Lord. So what did he do? As soon as he came to Berea, he found another Jewish synagogue, went in, and what did he give them? The word of the Lord. My dear friends, let us be like Paul. Let us be steadfast. Steadfast. I understand that our context is very different from Paul's. We're not seeking to enter a Jewish synagogue and evangelize first century audiences. But the call to steadfastness is very much the same. Be steadfast. Be steadfast in the spread of the word in your own heart and in your own mind. Do not neglect the basics of the faith. Be steadfast in the spread of the word in your own families. This is especially relevant to fathers. Let us not make the mistake of thinking that our children will ever reach a point in which they will have outgrown their urgent need of being confronted with and transformed by the Word of God. The same steadfastness that Paul applied to others, to the mission, and the way he pursued them with the Word of God in the synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, it should be the same steadfastness that we have with regard to the Word of God. Let us be steadfast. And as we do, even beyond Paul, we remember the Lord Jesus. Paul himself prayed this for the Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Of Christ. Paul imitated Christ. Let us imitate Paul. Consider the next lesson regarding Paul's steadfastness. Unlike Thessalonica... Berea was a small, unimpressive city, more like a little town of no great significance. And yet God had people in that town who were simply waiting for their election to be made manifest through their justification as they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of God's word. Paul did not consider the size or the popularity of the town. Wherever Paul landed, whether in popular Thessalonica or humble Berea, he sought to always be what? Faithful, faithful. Let us never, brothers and sisters, underestimate the significance of the small work, the smaller settings, the not as impressive tasks. None of us have been called to be popular, well-known, or whatever else. We have been called to be faithful. So whether you minister to thousands, hundreds, a few dozen, a handful, or one disciple, or just a husband ministering the word of God to your wife, if you get to impart the knowledge of Christ, do so faithfully and be steadfast. We see next the word-centered nobility of the Bereans. The word-centered nobility of the Bereans. Verse 11. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What things did they examine daily? Everything Paul was communicating to them concerning Christ being who? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that Paul reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures as he did in Thessalonica. But notice the main difference. The Jews in Berea were already submissive to God's word. Did you notice that difference? They were already submissive to God's word. For them, this conversation with Paul was intra-biblical, was intra-biblical, not extra-biblical. In other words, the Jews in Berea, unlike those in Thessalonica, were not rebellious toward God and his word. Instead, they were actually seeking to understand the word. They were waiting for someone to come and explain God's word to them rather than for someone to affirm them in their own sinful preconceived ideas. The Bereans wanted the Old Testament to speak to them rather than them speaking into the Old Testament as the one in, ones in Thessalonica. Hence the words in verse 11. They examined the scriptures daily. They went to the source of authority. Now, does this remind you of someone else in the book of Acts? As I was reading this, it reminded me of the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter 8. Remember what he was doing when Philip found him? He was reading what? The scroll of Isaiah 53. And when Philip found him, he asked him, do you understand? what you're reading, to which the eunuch responded, how can I, unless someone guides me? I love the eunuch. I love the Ethiopian eunuch because he, along with the Bereans, can teach us what it means to be a noble Christian, a noble Christian. The eunuch, if you think about it, what did he know? How much theological knowledge did he have? He wasn't a great theologian. In fact, he didn't know anything. But he had one thing. He had one thing. Humility before God's word. Humility before God's word. He knew he did not understand the scriptures. But he knew he needed to. Did you get that? He knew he did not understand the scriptures, but he knew he was convinced he needed to. He needed to. A noble Christian is a therefore Christian. What I mean is this. You must understand that a faithful, strong Christian life can only be the outflow of something greater than yourself. You have to understand that a strong, faithful Christian life can only be the outflow of something greater than yourself. It is like this. Before a husband, before a husband can love his wife truly, he must understand how Christ loved the church sacrificially. And out of the outflow of this massive, majestic, glorious reality, the husband can love the wife. Christian nobility, then, has nothing to do with the place of birth, 
family ties, bank accounts, etc. Christian nobility is directly attached to scriptures. The Bereans were called more noble because of what they did with scriptures. They examined it and they submitted to it. What is a noble Christian then? It is the one who remains humble and childlike before the word of God. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, the noble Christian is the one who is constantly seeking to understand this book. For he knows that apart from this book, there is no wisdom, there is no life, there is no truth. How desperate are you for the truth of God's word? Both the eunuch and the Bereans had this one God-given quality in common. They both knew they didn't understand the scriptures, but they both knew they needed it, and desperately so. This is the leading quality of true nobility. So how do we become noble Christians? We must cultivate an ever-growing childlike dependence on the Word of God, which is always accompanied by a healthy self-awareness that our hearts are what? Deceitful above all things. We must cultivate a childlike dependence on this book, always accompanied by the healthy self-awareness that if not, our hearts will deceive us. Did you notice what the Bereans didn't do? They didn't have an emotionally charged reaction to what Paul said. Why? They were not being led by their own understanding. They did not give primacy to their own hearts. Rather, they received Paul's words with eagerness, searched the scriptures, and followed wherever they led. Were they special then? Were the Bereans special? No. Going back to the Ethiopian eunuch, why did God send Philip to him? Because God had already been working on the Philippian I'm sorry, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch just needed someone to come alongside him and help him make sense of what he was reading in the Old Testament. Philip reasoned with him, and God opened his eyes. Likewise, I would place the Bereans in that category. God had already been working in their hearts and their minds as seen in the fact that they were seeking answers within the Scriptures. Now, confirmation of this comes from Paul himself. As he explains later in his letter to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 5, we can safely conclude that these Berean Jews belonged to what Paul calls the remnant. The remnant. These were the Jews chosen by grace, the ones that did not bow the knee to idols. And because of their election in Christ, by the time Paul showed up in their synagogue, guided by the Holy Spirit, they were ready to receive the word with its proper Christ-centered, Jesus-exalted interpretation. In connection to this, here's what we see next in this glorious narrative. Here's the next point. The word, sent, the word created faith. The word created faith. Of believers. The word created faith of believers. Verse 12, many of them, and here we go, therefore, 
Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Behold the power of the word of God. Here's the all-important moment defining therefore. Notice the order in which things took place. First, the Bereans spent days examining the scriptures. Therefore, as a result of this, they believed. What did they believe? That Jesus is the Christ. And that in him there is forgiveness of sins according to scripture. They believed the gospel as presented in the word and as proclaimed and interpreted by the apostle Paul with authority. On that day, the Bereans were given true faith. The Word of God is not only something that we read, brothers and sisters, the Word of God does something in us and to us. It was through the prophet Isaiah that God said, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. The word of God is a living thing. Now you have your Bibles with you. Yes, thank you, Micah. Are you the only one with the Bible? Oh, <laughs> Consider, take your Bibles and look with me at the few references that we find about the Word of God in the book of Acts. All in the book of Acts. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 7. Now, pay attention to this. This is quite critical. Quite critical. You don't want to miss this. There is a point to be made that is just marvelous and glorious. Listen to chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to what? Increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of them became obedient to the faith. Sounds like a living thing, doesn't it? Only living things increase, increase. Look now at chapter 12 of Acts, verse 24. 12, 24, in the midst of much persecution, disturbance, and even the death of a ruler, Luke says, but the word of God did what? Increased and multiplied. Whoa, the word of God? Increasing, multiplying? Sounds like a living thing, doesn't it? And then go to chapter 19. Verse 20, we're looking ahead into the future. When we get to Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Ephesus, we will hear this triumphant description that says the following. 1920, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Wow. The word of the Lord increasing, multiplying, prevailing, prevailing. Sounds like a living thing, doesn't it? We conclude then that the book of Acts is, among other things, the spirit-inspired historical record of the mighty triumph of the living Word of God in the world. 
Don't lose sight of that. It will become very important at the end of the sermon. Hold it. Hold that thought. The events recorded for us in Acts 17, 11, and 12 are a wonderful illustration of this reality. The Word of God prevails. The Word of God increases. The Word of God is mighty. As the Bereans examined the Scriptures, they were saved. Scriptures, therefore, faith. You see, the events in Berea are the confirmation that God's Word does always accomplish its purposes and never returns to God empty. It never fails to bring forth the fruit for which it was sent. As Paul told Timothy, the scriptures, the sacred writings can make one wise for what? For salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 3.15. On that day, the Bereans were given faith to believe the scriptures because the word of God is alive. And the Spirit of God takes it and applies it to our hearts. The Word of God increases. Don't lose sight of that. The Word of God increases. It multiplies. I heard a war veteran give an amazing testimony that directly applies to this. Having served several tours and after seeing and experiencing many, many battles upon arrival back in the States, he was diagnosed with a myriad of problems which led to a myriad of medications Consequently, he was medically retired. The days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead were truly a nightmare for him. He was so desperate to start feeling better that he put his all into everything that he was told to do. He fully dedicated himself to everything available to him, including yoga, acupuncture, Eastern mysticism, meditation, and several forms of mental therapy. Unfortunately, he said he shared that the results were the opposite of what he wanted. After doing this, doing this for a long time, he was becoming increasingly selfish and self-centered. The main sufferer in all of this was his own wife. Life was miserable for a long, long time. This went on for quite some time until he came across a book that pointed him in a very completely, totally different direction. And the book told him to do two things. Pray and read the Psalms. Pray and read the Psalms at set times during the day. So he started. To his surprise, he found in David a man like himself, a warrior who had been through much pain and suffering, a man who has seen much bloodshed and hatred. But more importantly, he saw in David a man who cried out to God unceasingly, a man who poured out his soul before the Lord over and over and over again. And so in David, this war veteran found a role model. And as he read the Psalms, as he said he read the Psalms and he prayed consistently, it became transformative. It became transformative. Eventually, he understood that repentance and faith in Christ were the heart of true hope. There was nothing else. The Lord delivered him out of his misery. He became a seminary student and eventually a biblical counselor. The lesson is this. The lesson is this. The word is always at work in us. The word of God is always at work 
in us. Reading the scriptures in faith. Reading the scriptures in faith is never in vain. Is never in vain. But as I said, the word of God always prevails, even through judgment. And here's the next point. The word confirming jealousy of the Jews. The word confirming jealousy of the Jews. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. I just want to briefly repeat what I mentioned last week concerning the Jews. While a few, namely the remnant or the elect Jews, did believe the word of God concerning Jesus being the Christ, as the ones in Berea did, the vast majority, the vast majority, what Paul calls the rest in Romans 11, they were hardened. They were hardened. And Paul makes this very clear in Romans 11, verse 7. There is a small minority of Jews who were called by God, call elected by grace and they believed but the the vast majority the rest were hardened and this jealousy only served to confirm the veracity of God's prophetic word that a day would come in which the Jews God's own people would reject the Messiah and fail to believe in him once again proving the truthfulness of God's word but notice the pervasive, desperate, desperate reach of bitter jealousy. Persecuting Paul and Silas in Thessalonica wasn't enough. They were hungry for more. They were eager to destroy, hurt, and do damage. All oh, the horrors of bitter jealousy. You will hardly find a more destructive vice. It is all-consuming. Thankfully, what the Jews meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. And so we see next the word spreading effect of persecution. The word spreading effect of persecution. Verses 14 and 15. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. The brothers are probably a reference to the new believers. But Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. As God would have it, the evil purposes of the Jews and their undeterred jealousy only served to do what? To spread the word of God even further. While Silas and Timothy remained in Berea, likely to continue to disciple the new believers there, Paul was taken all the way to Athens, the capital of Greece and the very heart of the intellectual world of antiquity. Oh, the providence of God. Undoubtedly, what the Jews meant for evil, God meant for good. And Paul's ministry in Athens will be our companion all the way to Easter Sunday. I hope you won't miss it. Uh, it, it just it felt perfectly right. And so I hope you won't, you won't miss the next two Sundays as we prepare for Easter. Now, let me give you something for further meditation. That is our passage for this morning, but I want you to consider a few more things and we will be done. For further meditation, consider these words, and the word increased and multiplied. What a powerful statement. And the word increased and multiplied. 
I want you to take this mostly as a word of great encouragement to you. The book of Acts shows us the activity of the living word of God. What does the word of God do? It bears fruit. It increases. It multiplies. I said I would return to this point, so here we go. New Testament scholars G.K. Beale and Benjamin Glad found, and I wish I could take credit for this insight. It's, it's just marvelous, but I can't. These two scholars, they found a very interesting connection between Acts and Genesis. More specifically, the connection is as follows. Acts, as we read, tells us that the word increase, right? We read it together. It multiplied, meaning the word saved people as it did in Berea. The word accomplishes what it set out to do. What Beale and Glad pointed out is that the language of increase, multiplication, fruitfulness, and prevailing, which acts ascribes to the word of God, brings us back to what Adam and Eve were told to do in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it, and to have what? Dominion. Are you seeing this? Adam and Eve were told to have dominion. But they failed. They were told to have dominion over every creature. All of a sudden, a creature shows up, a snake, and the creature takes dominion over them. They fail. They disobeyed. As a result, their increasing and their multiplying meant the increase and the multiplication of what? Sin and death. In Acts, however, we see the Word doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. The Word increased, and the Word multiplied, and the Word prevailed mightily. In Acts, we see the Word exercising what? Dominion. Dominion. In the garden, Adam brought death. In Acts, the word increased and multiplied by bringing life. By bringing life to dead souls. Why does the word do that? Let me answer this by showing you one more parallel that I believe is worth our consideration. And with this, we will finish. Actually, it's only 1138. We have a lot of time. Let's just take our time and go slow. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And I want us to begin reading in verse 6. So what I want to do with this passage is I want to take a rope and hook it to Genesis 1.28, all the reference in Acts to the Word of God increasing and bringing both together. Consider carefully what it says. What this passage will do is to bring the language of Genesis and Acts together in a wonderful union. What we are about to read, though possessing an immediate historical context, is in an ultimate sense a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, the Christ. And this is what it says, Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the what? Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you see it? Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Adam and Eve functioned as kings in the world God had created. And they were given the task of multiplying, subduing the earth, taking dominion for the glory of God, but they failed. Thankfully, the child announced in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, did not fail. He came. He died. He rose again. He ascended on high. He sat at the right hand of the Father. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he commissioned his apostles to write his word. And now that word increases and now that word multiplies. Why? Because that word is the sword of the Spirit by which Jesus defeats his enemies, saves his people, and through the same word, he conquers the world. On that day, the Bereans were saved because the word of Jesus brought life to them. On that day, the word increased because through that word, Jesus rules. He exercises dominion. Why? Because to him has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Through Isaiah, God promised that the increase of his son's government would have no end. Therefore, the world, the word of God will continue to increase. Brothers and sisters, let us rest assured. God and his word will never, never, never fail. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, simple yet timely reminder for us that even as the world changes and continues to change, your word will never change. And the authority given to the Lord Jesus and the power of the spirit will never be diminished. And so we thank you for these realities that do not change. And so even as we Consider the true darkness that is taking place around us. Oh, Father, give us the confidence and the certainty that your word will never fail. We thank you for the example in the book of Acts. That the word increased and multiplied and prevailed mightily. May that be true in our own lives as the word continues to transform us into the image of Christ. And it is in his precious and glorious name that we pray. Amen.